You can have all the evidence in the world and still not believe. One of the subtle joys of the Easter account is the mild astonishment on the part of the angels at the women who come to the tomb. Why do you seek the living among the dead? They ask. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? It's so great. Um, hello. Don't you remember how he told you that this exact thing would happen? So why are you here? What part didn't you get? One would think, and perhaps we often do think, that hearing Jesus speak with our own ears, seeing his miracles with our own eyes, walking around with him for three years as his disciples had done, would provide all the evidence we would ever need to believe. And yet the disciples themselves, who had all of these advantages, did not believe, at least not in his sin-atoning death and his death-destroying resurrection. To put it bluntly, sin makes us stupid. It's not only the angels who seem to marvel at the spiritual slowness of the disciples. Like that TV show, Undercover Boss, our risen Lord himself goes incognito and walks with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And after interviewing them about the events of Good Friday through Easter, he says to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he took them back to Sunday school. He interpreted, to them, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Sin makes us foolish. And our entire world suffers from a massive spiritual Dunning-Kruger effect. We're so spiritually incapable, we can't even recognize our incapability. Or to put it more bluntly, we're so spiritually stupid, we can't even recognize that we're spiritually stupid or foolish, as Jesus says. In the Small Cold Articles, Luther writes, sin is such a deep corruption of our nature, reason cannot understand it. We are by nature too corrupted by sin to even understand how sinful we are, too sick to even realize how sick we are. In fact, the scriptures go so far as to say that we are by nature dead. Dead and we don't even know it. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, St. Paul writes, until God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace. And that means not by your own reason, not by your own strength, not by your own free will, but by grace. Dead people have no free will to exercise. They have no reason and they have no strength. When Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, he didn't say, now Lazarus, I want you to use your free will and make a decision to come back to life. Nor did he say, now Lazarus, I've provided you with sufficient evidence to believe that I can raise you from the dead. 
No, he simply said, Lazarus, come forth. The strength was not in Lazarus, but in the word of Jesus. So the first lesson that the scriptures have to teach us is that we are way worse off than we think. We are dead in our trespasses and sins until God, being rich in mercy, makes us alive. Conversion from unbelief to belief, from death to life, is solely the work of God. And St. Paul's point is that just as Christ has been raised from the dead literally and physically, we have already been raised from the dead spiritually. There is first a spiritual resurrection for us, then a physical resurrection. This is why our Lutheran confessions teach that there is a very great difference between the baptized and the unbaptized. St. Paul writes, we were buried, therefore, with him, with Christ, by baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Thus, to be baptized is to experience sp spiritual resurrection. Indeed, the Old Testament text for today, Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of dry bones. For all of its very graphic and visceral imagery is foremost about the spiritual resurrection of God's people. They rise from spiritual death, not by their own free will, not because they have been presented with sufficient evidence, not because of their own reason, not because of their own strength. They rise because God tells the prophet to preach, and he preaches. The power lies not in the dead people, but in God who raises them from the dead. And this too, then, is a profoundly comforting picture of salvation. The power to be saved lies not in ourselves, but in God who saves us. Apart from God, we are dead in our trespasses, and not like Wesley in The Princess Bride, who is only mostly dead. <laughs> Apart from God, we are just plain old dead dead. We are like the dry bones that Ezekiel sees. Can these bones live, God asks? Oh, Lord, you know, Ezekiel responds. We can't save ourselves, only God can. Thus, with the psalmist, we simply pray to Christ, I am yours, save me. Christ, who came to save sinners, of which I am chief. Christ, who will never cast the sinner out or snuff out the smoldering wick. Christ, who has shed his own blood to cleanse us from all our sins. Christ, who is risen so that we too might rise. Christ, who is risen to pour out his spirit upon us and absolve us. Unworthy as I am, I am yours, O Christ. Save me. But the fallen man acts quite contrary to this, doesn't he? The fallen man acts as if he were God. He sits in judgment over God and demands that God submit to his own ever-changing notions of what is good and evil. He sits as his own, on his own self-appointed judgment seat, declaring that he will never have to stand before the judgment seat of God 
And if he does, God will have no choice but to cower at the might of his atheistic arguments that he learned on the internet. He sits in judgment over history and demands the right to determine for himself what happened and what did not happen. He'll cling to elaborate and ridiculously far-fetched theories on the basis of a single scrap of bone. He would declare this nonsense to be irrefutable science, even though it will be refuted and replaced with another elaborate theory within his own lifetime, which he will, with equal zeal, declare to be irrefutable science. In his faux intellectualism, he will take for granted certain historic persons and events while denying the historic existence of Jesus and the historic event of his resurrection, which have far greater attestation than these other historic persons or events which he simply assumes. He will sit in judgment over the scriptures, dismissing whatever part he does not like as fiction or poetry. He will subject the scriptures to whatever notion he presently thinks is scientific and thus declare that part of scripture to be a myth. He will subject the scriptures to his own reason. Whatever he does not understand, he will interpret according to the narrow limitations of his own mortal mind. Fallen man is simply too deluded to even know how deluded he is. He denies the true God precisely by assuming himself to be God. So today is the second Sunday of Easter. We didn't forget to put the decorations done, down. <laughs> Easter is an entire season. And today is the second Sunday, Quasimodo Geneti, which may bring to your mind a Disney character, but it should instead bring to our minds newborn infants. Quasimodo Geneti means like newborn infants, a quotation of 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. Rather than self-appointed gods sitting in judgment over God, over history, over scripture, let us consider ourselves instead to be newborn infants. We who are dead in our trespasses have been made alive in Jesus. We are, in this sense, newborns from the grave of sin. In the scriptures, spiritual resurrection and spiritual birth are one and the same. Therefore, as newborns crave milk, let us crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word, that by his word we may grow up to salvation. Ironically, we don't grow up until we first grow down and realize that we are not God. We are infant, infants. We are not God. We need God. And God has sent his son for the very purpose of delivering us. What more could be done? On the cross, he made propitiation, atonement for your sins and for the sins of the entire world. And on Easter morning, he gave you the greatest proof and evidence of this that one could possibly imagine. The man who was literally crucified and died has literally risen from the dead. His resurrection is the proof that God is real, that your sins are forgiven, that he not only can but will raise you from the grave. 
Again, his resurrection is the proof. If you want proof of the proof, you can find that too. In the scriptural prophecies fulfilled, in the eyewitness accounts of his resurrection, both friendly and hostile, and in the volume of those accounts and in, and in their nature, in the conversions that take place and in the martyrdoms of so many of those witnesses. But the truth is that will hardly suffice because the proof isn't enough. One who doubts will have to have proof of the proof and proof of the proofs that do the proving and so on. You can have all the evidence of the world and still not believe. There is no man so blind as he who will not see. No man so foolish as the one who insists that his foolishness is wisdom. No blame can be laid at God's feet. He desires that you and all people would come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. What more could he do? His death is for all. His resurrection is for all. Your maker is your savior. And the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>